You're ready to be premature wow, all over again. <laughs> wow, that's, that's impressive. Quick, quick reset. Yeah. Quick reset. Last night was Ramos Jizz. A Jizz. Who knew the job was pro bono? I was so high that um, I shit myself at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, get still here. Somebody, somebody, everybody mute. Goddamn, you can. <laughs> My SEAL Team 6 with the SEAL Team 12. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with punching above your weight. I thought you'd get better. Well, I don't know what's worse. You're a ginger or you've been vaccinated. You sit around and drink and solve the world's problems, right? Hey, let's go ahead and unwrap this present <laughs> so, uh, and let the debate begin. <laughs> Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. New week, new topic. Los Cuatro Chinetes are in the house. The Four Horsemen are back. We are fortunate to have, enough to have Haas here in the studio. He was out uh, last week. Haas, glad you're back. Hope you're feeling better. Looking forward to having you here. Uh, we also have a guest today, so we're super excited about that. But obviously, as always, before we jump into things, gentlemen, how is everybody doing? Doing well. Good, good, good. All is good. good. All is good. <laughs> there you go with your German. Uh, all right. So, you know, happy everybody's here. As I said, we have a guest uh, go ahead and now it is former brigadier general, right? Not still. I don't no, know how no, that works. Retired. General. retired. Brigadier Re general retired. Yeah. Brigadier general retired. It is Peter Duke DeLuca. And you go by Duke. You know, interesting going by Duke. For me, that's a very small group. John Wayne, the Duke. Yeah. <laughs> One of my <laughs> movies as a kid. Smaller. One of my movies as a kid, yeah. Escape from New York. The main villain, the Duke Isaac Hayes. So you're in, <laughs> you're in good company right there. But uh, yes, super super happy to have you here, Duke. Thank you for joining us. Um, you know, if you would just for our listeners, if you give you know a little background about yourself before we jump into things, I'd appreciate it. Sure, but first, Duke, it's even a smaller circle for me. The name is was my father's nickname. Okay. He was the original Duke DeLuca, and uh, when I was a little kid, I was little Duke because I would follow him around. He was a Fabulously, he was a sports writer. So we, he attended and covered all manner of sporting events to which I got to tag along and get in for free too. And uh, go into the locker rooms, go to the press box, go to wherever, meet people, get autographs, practice on the field with teams, whatever. You know, it was fabulous. It was really a great uh, sort of a kid's dream upbringing. And uh, he was Duke Toluca and he was this really just sort of a, a uh, bit of a madman type character without being such a dick that, you know, that, Dick Draper, <laughs> that Don Draper was, you know, uh, you know, he was handsome and tall and charming and, you know, could talk to anybody. That's one of the reasons he was a really good uh, journalist. Uh, he could speak with anyone, anywhere, anytime about anything. And uh, so Little Duke was fine. But then I became a teenager. As you know, we are busy trying to establish our own unique identity however ununique we might be right. in reality and uh so then i was peter so many of my friends from junior high and high school to include my current wife <laughs> my my last <laughs> wife i have a first wife and a last <laughs> wife uh she knew me in school as peter and still calls me that you know uh mostly except around other people now who are too used to duke or or the general so uh <laughs> yeah, so that's where that name comes from. So, but when I, my father died when I was 15. And uh, as I grew a little older, I began to see what a special character he was in the way that so many people have been affected by him. And as I went to college, I said, you know, 
there's a lot worse things to be called than Duke DeLuca or even Little Duke. <laughs> so I think I'll take that on as an honorific in his memory and his honor. And uh, and since then, that's what it's been. And it's been great. Yeah. And it's a frankly, it's a good army name. You know, <laughs> there are good army names and bad ones. That's not a bad one. Nobody has a problem following somebody called the Duke. You know, I think it made some things easier at some points. There was, although I have to say, I played rugby with uh, an MP who had the most fabulous uh, army name. And his name was Vegas McCain. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Sounds like yes. a wrestler. We're in. Yeah, what are we doing tonight? Yes. We're going with Vegas. Yes. Come on. It was perfect. It's like, McCain. dude. Perfect. I told him at the time, I, whenever I write a book, I'm stealing your name because I'm going to be in there. It's awesome. Or uh, nice. my old company commander who was an engineer named Steelhammer. Oh, yeah. That's a great name for yes. an engineer. Especially. Yeah. That's his actual name. Yes, that's his last day. Oh, yeah, yep. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Got pigeonholed into that job real quick. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was easy to pick his branch at Army. It's like, okay, there you go. Gotta go engineer. Well, Duke, we appreciate you joining us. Obviously, as our guest and what you bring to the table, we're going to jump off with you in terms of our drinks because we always go around the room and we just talk about what we're drinking today. Hopefully, you brought a drink. Well, look, we have heard <laughs> stories about the bar at your house. And so I'm interested to see what you brought today to the table. So it sounds pedestrian, but it isn't um, the, in honor of the uh, heat wave in Europe and in the U.S., frankly. And there's been like five nights in a row in Spain of Noches Torridos, where it's over 25 degrees centigrade at night, which normally it is not. I have a, a, a gin and tonic. It's got some lemon verbena leaves in there, some juniper berries. It's in a globe the way the Spanish serve it. Right. <laughs> um, they put ice in a globe. They freehand it. Then they put some tonic in with all whatever else they're going to throw in there. And it's fabulous. But this is a very special gin that sadly you cannot get in the United States yet. We'll say yet. It's called Nordis gin and it's distilled in the far Northwest corner of Spain, um, an area called Galicia. Gallegos. And um, <clears throat> I have a, a friend who married a woman from uh, Galicia who is currently assigned as a liaison, special forces liaison to the Spanish military. And so uh, we first tasted, my wife and I, this gin at his, the night before his wedding, as we were gathering, you know, the group was gathering for the ceremonies the next day. And uh, which are a whole separate story. A Galician wedding starts at 5 p.m. and lasts until dawn the next day. That's generally how it works. <laughs> and it's quite fabulous, <laughs> believe me. Uh, but uh <laughs> This gin is made with all sorts of coastal herbs. It's got some lemon verbena, it's got some juniper, it's got some of the standard stuff you would see in gins, but then it's got sea sage and all kinds of crazy stuff that grows along the Galician coast. And then a little bit of infusion of Galician wine. And so the flavor is unlike anything, any other gin I've ever tasted. And it's really wonderful. Flavor. Sounds amazing. So what happens is my good friend, I think uh, uh, Grinch may know him, uh, Kevin, we'll just call him Kevin B for now, uh, who is an amazing man. You know, he's about a seven foot tall special forces dude. You know, he's kind of the picture you have when you think of a special forces operator. And he uh, occasionally has visitors from Fort Bragg come over there and do things with the Spanish military. And almost inevitably, he'll have uh, one of them carry a bottle or two back for us here. I always take good care of the, the mule with some sort of treat, you know, when they've delivered you hear that, their, their cargo, you know, yeah, they pay them yeah. back for their troubles. 
because <laughs> I'm about an hour north of uh, Fort Bragg here. So uh, so it's pretty close. So so I've been able to stay in stock for some years now, since 2015, really, or 16. Uh, thanks to uh, Kevin B and uh, the supply chain. <laughs> Got to so keep that chain moving. He, he keeps wondering why his uh, orders to move get. get <laughs> I wish I had that much <laughs> Look, What's what's the name of the gin again? Nordis. N O R D E S. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I already saw. It looked like you were googling that already, Haas. Yeah. Yep. Haas lives there. in uh, Vienna. So. Yeah. Well, you can probably find. It. I don't know about Vienna, but the UK, I think, can get it. It's in the EU, so who knows? You know, so um, they love their gins here, and I have uh, in the last year have become a really big fan of gin and tonics. You have yeah. adopted that, um, yes. and generally, in, in fact, earlier when I was down in the beer garden watching the Formula One race, that's what I was drinking. Oh, um, I'm glad today I didn't because your gin and tonic would have most assuredly trumped my gin and tonic. No, no, no. I only did it because it's, it's it's one in the afternoon when we're taping this, which is a little early for me to start. <laughs> so I wanted a mixer in it, which I normally I don't have. I like, you know, drinks that are multiple ingredients, but they're all alcohol. I, you know, they're <laughs> my usual cocktail choice. But we wanted to start light because we got, you know, we got to last a long time today. <laughs> yeah. well, I've already added a bottle to my cart from the place that I order my, my liquor. Brilliant. From. You so, won't be disappointed. I think I'm interested to get you, your feedback on it when we're done. You know, I'm excited. Yeah. And, you know, when you come back to the States, Haas, if you want to, if you want to, you know, mule some back mule with you, we'd back. appreciate that. <laughs> it's not beyond my abilities. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. So you I won't mention keystering, but <laughs> I was <laughs> not even, I was not even going there. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, all right, Mr. Prison Wallet. Thank you, Duke, for that. Haas, I'm going to let you go next since you wanted to chime in. What are you drinking today, brother? Yeah. Uh, coincidentally, I was going to go with gin and tonic and then somebody sent out something about um, today being national tequila day yes so i decided to go with a tequila beverage i i am drinking something called um i had it open and the tab closed it is the hold on bear with me sorry that's editing, max way of saying editing, we made it a total of 14 yeah. minutes yeah. before yeah. We without making a joke yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, being semi-professional <laughs> So I went today. It's a new the, record for us, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're trying to we're trying to behave ourselves here. I don't know why. That's um, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry, Hoth. That's all right. Uh, today I'm drinking a coconut rum sunrise, uh, tequila, orange juice, pineapple juice, uh, coconut juice, and grenadine. And yeah. I went with the um, Don Julio Blanco. And what's it nice. called? Very oh. nice. Coconut rum surprise. Coconut rum. Surprise, yeah. Why? Out of curiosity, there's no rum in it? Uh, yeah, I, I'm <laughs> telling you. I, look, man, that's the surprise. It's just, okay. it's tequila, not, <laughs> tequila, not rum. Yes, it is. I've heard of tequila sunrises, but never right. one that was called a coconut rum surprise. Yeah. Awesome. yeah, I was listening okay. to those ingredients going, and it'll be I'm next. I'm waiting for the rum. And it'll I'm be like, next. No, <laughs> yep. no rum. Like, what the hell? Surprise. Well, that's kind of funny because, you know, Kahlua is coffee flavored, but it's actually rum. Mm -hmm. There's a, there are coffee liqueurs out there that are quite lovely to, to mix in with your espresso teeny or whatever the hell it is you're trying to make with coffee liqueur, or just sipping it after dinner. But Kahlua isn't coffee liqueur, strangely enough. <laughs> it is a rum drink. All right. Look at that. We got educated 
yes, already we did. today. Dude, so yeah. thank you. All we're right, Grinch. Of useless knowledge, yes. Uh, there you go. Uh, Grinch, you were kind enough to bring our it, guest to the table. It's so not useless on this podcast, no. by the way. That's true. That's It'll true. come back it's again. appreciated, yeah. <laughs> um, I went back to uh, the drink I made the day we just hung out. We didn't record, actually, the paper plane. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean... You know, it's a classic drink. It does require, what is it, Amaro, I think, which is the unique aspect. Mm-hmm. That's the one you have to hunt down to make a paper plane. Amaro Nonino, yeah. Otherwise, it's Aperol, lemon juice, and a bourbon. Um, so the Amaro is the one that's, that's without it, it's not a paper plane. So, yeah. For so those of us that don't know, what is Amaro? It oh. was, I think it's made in Sicily, perhaps? Yes, well, they bury, every village in Italy makes their own. So Amaro is just a bitter liqueur that's distilled from whatever weeds grow by the side of the road. So some of them have 25 to 30 ingredients. Some of them have five herbs, you know, that are local and they distill it and it's a bitter. So um, they, they don't always use it uh, as an aperitif, although often Italians will drink bitter drinks as an aperitif. We can talk about why in a second. And then sometimes they'll have it after dinner. Amaro is meant to aid digestion. It's supposed to be good for your stomach. You know, the Germans have a very harsh uh, version uh, called Underberg. Underberg, some of you may see. You may probably see that in Austria as well. It's an Amaro, essentially. It's a distilled herbal bitter for your... And it says right on the label of Underberg, for den Magen, for your stomach, right? So allegedly, a digestive aid, I suspect it was just because it made you feel good. Um, and... Uh, so um, there's, I probably have 27 different Amaros here on the shelves in the Sapper Lounge, just because there are so many. And I, I've seen another 50 out there, you know, that I don't have room to buy or, or store. So uh, you can have any kinds. Some are really super bitter. Some are bittersweet, a mix, you know, then they have all kinds of different lilts and tilts based on what ingredients they use. It's really quite a fascinating world. There is one, however, that is so bitter that I have to put it in droppers and just use a drop or two. You can't sip it. You can't even mix like a half ounce into a cocktail. Mm-hmm. It's like a piece of sod in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 18 minutes. I've been educated twice already. Oh, no, that's great. I love Damn. it. Uh, all right. So the paper plane done it before. Paper plane. Bring it back. All right. Mac. Obviously, we're gonna we're gonna shift to you. I got to imagine International Tequila Day is gonna pop up here. Yeah, and you know, pretty much here's where the education stops. Is that, is that what <laughs> trying to imply? Um, you, you got 18 minutes, and now and now you'll get nothing. Um, <laughs> it's a margarita. So, uh, yeah. So National Tequila Day had to go with a margarita. Um, so it is, you know, use the uh, Patron Silver because uh, I'm not, you know, a big baller like Hoss there with a Don Julio. Yeah. Um, don't disappoint and, right here. Don't disappoint right here. All right. And Thor, what did you bring to the table? <laughs> you asked me not it. to disappoint you. you uh, it's pre-made, pre-made mix. It's pre-made, pre-made mix. mix. Um, <laughs> only, only. Uh, Do you hear what? the judgment? Do you hear Jeez. this judgment coming yeah. at you? No, it's just, it's sadness and empathy. <laughs> I revoke your Jedi training. You're done. So, Duke, there's a long story here, right? So, for the longest time, I did pre-made mixes, you know, because well, you know, and I, and I still, it's it's laziness, right? 
you know, I, I'll admit it, right? It's easy to make a bunch of them with a pre-made mix. <clears throat> so um, I'm guessing, I think it was January or February. January. Uh, Thor was up uh, visiting. And so we actually took the time and sat down and made, you know, and, and he swore. He's like, you know, once you make the homemade, you'll never go back. And you fought me and, on it for a long time. And I fought you on it um, because, you know, I thought it was going to be way more complicated than it was to actually make it. Uh, so we made it here. It was fantastic. Um, but I was, in, I was in there the... no more. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. He's not here to make it for me anymore. I got to make that shit myself. No, I don't think so. Um, so no, so I was in the Costco the other day. They had the, the double jug for six bucks. Uh, so I picked it up and was like, you know, we'll give it a shot. And I remember why I, I agreed with you. It, it is not as good. Um, oh, that's it. So but, you know, every now and then you see it and you're like, well, you know, let me try it. Maybe it's maybe it's just in my mind. Maybe it will actually be as good, but it's six dollars for five gallons of pre-made. How can I go wrong? Exactly. Right. I get it. I you get know? it. Still disappointing. <laughs> it is. So, so you just made a basic margarita. Just basic margarita. Yeah. Unsurprising. Hey, but that that's your go to. So it's OK. You're in a safe space. Yeah. We still love you. But come on, man. No more. No more pre-made. Of course now you're like but i've got five gallons of pre-made i gotta go that's through. right <laughs> i got I'm not pouring it Four out and a half, right so. <laughs> all right uh and then i will finish up uh so i also decided to jump on board with the national tequila day and i was trying to find something i hadn't done before so i went with what's called the ranch water which is a weird ass name doesn't sound all that appetizing but it is simply uh tequila fresh lime juice which I grow and squeeze myself, Mac, as you know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it is fresh lime juice. And then you stir that together and then you pour in mineral water, club soda, and just fill it up. And so that's all I do. And so, it, you know, it's supposed to be a refreshing, uh, cool beverage with a tingle from the lime. So I went with some easy three ingredients and then just drop in a lime wedge and go to town. So that's what I'm having. It's called a ranch water. So mm, my honor to tequila Collins type thing. Yeah. 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 National tequila day. I figured I'll spare no expense. Little club, soda, <laughs> little tequila, little lime juice. <laughs> uh, so there we go. We've rounded out our drinks. Duke, thanks for being here. I will say cheers to all of you. Yeah. Thank for you for a cheers. great show. Cheers. All right. So there we go. Education, Mac, yours, yours was still an education even if it wasn't a good one. I know because I've had plenty of bad education. All right. So let's jump into our topic. The train is rolling. Uh, so Grinch, you sent this out early. Well, no, it wasn't even, it was what prior to this week, wasn't it? Is it, it was late last, last week? Maybe. 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 <clears throat> uh, you sent out a video and the video was Irish member of parliament, Michael Wallace, Mick Wallace, as he likes to go by and his very ZZ top look with his purple shirt and his, bleach blonde hair and he was extolling as i joked about in the text he was extolling the many virtues of american democracy um and it was really just kind of his diatribe about american politics currently where they're at and almost trying to explain his lack of understanding how in the rest of the world we seem to have an issue talking about uh, the dumpster fire that is american politics in a lot of regards and the things that they're doing and his lack of understanding as to why. And he even says in the video, we'll talk about other countries. Why will we not talk about America? Why do we have such a problem with this? So I thought in talking to Grinch and watching this video a number of times, and then his uh, willingness to bring Duke onto the show 
and obviously Duke with your military background and your expertise and clearly your knowledge, whatever that knowledge is, if it's bar drinks or doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I thought it would be a good place to discuss the interesting nature of a foreign perspective on America and how we're viewed outside the country. Cause a lot of times we tend to look at things, as I said, before you came on, uh, Duke, we tend to look at things through rose-colored glasses internally, right? We're, we're inside our own house, and we we kind of get lost sometimes about maybe how outside we're viewed and whether or not it's good or bad. And so it's interesting to get this perspective from you know Mike Wallace in the Irish Parliament and how he is kind of like look at all of the things that they're doing negatively, and you know this is who people are calling you know a, you know a great country. And so I thought it would be interesting to discuss this and that perspective. And, and it's not so much going, Hey, you know, we are a shit show, but trying to understand why are we viewed that way from the outside? Cause I know Grinch has said this many times on the show, his military background, being in foreign lands, dealing with, you know, foreign countries, looking at it now, it's almost, he, he feels some shame in, in where we're at and how we're potentially viewed from the outside world. Sure. And I, obviously with your background in the military, I would also be interested about your perspective on that as well, because we are talking the foreign aspect, you know, a foreign country looking at us and how we're being portrayed. So that's really the topic. And Grinch, if you'd like to jump in. Yeah. What, what I want to add to that is, you know, certainly um, I stand by that comment of being embarrassed and ashamed of, of how we're viewed on the world stage at times, uh, particularly, you know, on the heels of what happened January 6th, et cetera. But um, I think the part that still bothers me is, that perceived American arrogance that we're beyond reproach. And we don't really speak to our own problems internationally very well. We tend to act holier than now. Broad stroke, right? I mean, not on every single engagement, but, it, but, but that seems to be sort of the way the world perceives the United States is we can point fingers, but we're not really great at pointing them back at ourselves and going, you're right, like our healthcare isn't great. You know, um, you know, we do have discrimination issues, you know, so in terms of like judging others over human rights and things like that, we act like we don't have any problems at times, at least, you know, and then you couple that with our media, which is so American centric, it doesn't look outward. It's literally our politics 24 seven. So it's like this, this mechanism, this feedback mechanism that just stays in its own loop you know, some might call it a self-licking ice cream cone. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of, you know, that was what was on my mind. And then this video came and then that we kind of unearthed some of the older stuff that exists about, you know, is America great? You know, it's incarceration rate and this and that and the other. So, so that, that's, that's kind of the scene setter, I guess. So wait a minute, before we jump in, we can't make ass jokes, but you can make self-licking ice cream commentary it's an approved phrase oh it's, it's an approved shit. phrase yeah. <laughs> um legal says it's not it's not a phrase. exactly i distinctly got this memo right here yeah, that says. Says. Yeah. the more important thing is you said some people say it who I've, I've i've never heard yeah. it from anybody but you yeah. some is you. twice now it's, it's, it's definitely don't, an army thing yes know. yes i say don't go jump and ship on me now mac you were on board with it last time but an it, army thing but sorry so that's my scene setter so i guess maybe the opener is a bit of uh, i don't know duke turn it over to you to kind of like a starting reaction to those thoughts well inevitably as individuals 
and as a large group, like a nation, your self view, your view of yourself and how you think you are and others view of you and how they think you are, are never exactly the same. However, self-aware you might be, and let's be honest, the American public is deeply unself-aware in many ways, right? Uh, however self-aware you are, you're still not going to be 100% match, right? They're going to see other parts of you as salient than, than what you see, right? Um, and I'm sure you all probably have a bunch of stories about people and what you said or did that had a big effect on them. In many cases, it may be things you said or did you don't even remember because they were so trivial to you, but to them, they were really important or significant at the time. Um, and this is the case with the United States. And I was fortunate in the army to work in, I wanna say 28, 29 different countries, dealing with their military establishments, often with their politicians. Uh, and that led to a huge education in various frames of reference and how we look to them that is not what you would expect from a kid who grew up in, you know, suburban Pennsylvania, outside Reading, Pennsylvania, you know. Uh, uh, and so uh, it's not surprising that the world sees things that the American public's unaware of uh, or, or, or doesn't pay attention to because the American public often doesn't have anything to compare it to. 25% or 27% of Americans have a passport. The rest of them haven't been out of the country. You know, they know what happens here. And certainly our public media is consumed with navel gazing and what's important in America, not what's going on around the world. I mean, if you want that, you got to listen to the BBC or, you know, something, some other news service, Al Jazeera, you know, to hear really in-depth stories about something going on outside the world without the center point of the article being how it affects you in, you know, Wichita, Kansas. Because even when you get international news in the U.S., typically it's all about, okay, this means this for you, you know, here in uh, back in Texas. So that's the first thing, <clears throat> you know, so I, I'm not surprised that others will have much different views of how we are. And the self-image that many Americans have when they espouse certain viewpoints about what should be happening in the world, the rest of the world, they, they almost always stem from a huge lack of information about what's actually going on in the world and, uh, and what we're actually doing in the world. Many foreign governments, what I saw was people, foreign people and foreign governments pay enormous attention to the words of our leaders and their actions in a, in a level of attention and detail that Americans don't pay attention to our own leaders that way. You know, more than once I'll have someone, did you hear what the Secretary, Secretary of State said, you know, last Tuesday at wherever, you know, at Aspen or, you know, whatever conference was going on. And my answer was most usually, no, I have no idea, right? Because it wasn't affecting my life. You know, I was moving out with my mission set, you know, in the army or, you know, as now in business as a consultant. And, uh, but they all pay close attention because we're huge and we're powerful and we're dangerous. And we're dangerous not just as an opponent, we're dangerous as an ally because we can inadvertently harm our partners and allies very easily. We're that, we're that strong. And so they all have to pay attention to us in ways that our American public doesn't. So it's no shock that there's this huge difference in how Americans are seeing themselves for lots of reasons. They, they could know more than they know, but they're busy leading their lives. And, uh, because we're a powerful country and we have an 8,000 mile and a 4,000 mile moat, they 
are free to focus on their local family and their local job and their country club or their church or their golf club or whatever it is that their hobby is, you know, their craft shop or the train club, you know, and it's a beautiful thing that they don't have to sweat what's happening in Ouagadougou, Africa tonight, because it might hurt them tomorrow. That's awesome. But it's also a weakness of the American public mind, right? And, you know, we rely on elected leaders to help us navigate that, honestly. And it would be nice if you could have a media that would actually report on it so that people could have a modicum of information. I mean, the, our founding documents were based on the idea of a citizen that was at least attempting to be somewhat informed, educated, which right. is really not the case yeah. right now. <laughs> but again, so being educated to that level, and again, can you, you know, can you take the time to know everything? No, but at least having a modicum of education in certain affairs makes you a better informed citizen in terms of how you approach things. And as you mentioned, somebody in Wichita, Kansas, like, well, it doesn't affect my daily life. I'm in middle America. You know, why does it matter? And it's like, because there are, yeah. there are well, so to, many to, things. Sorry, go to, ahead. Huh? To further Duke's point, something I didn't realize until I was here is one of my neighbors is an advisor to the chancellor here. And he and I sometimes get together and have drinks and, and talk. And something I was unaware of is it's not just high level political figures that are paying attention to U.S. and U.S. politics. Yes, that's right. It's average people. That's they, right. He was telling me and this absolutely blew, blew my lid. He was telling me that there are a lot of individuals here that are wholly unaware of their own nation's politics on every <clears> level, but can tell you what are happening in our midterms yes. in the middle of Kansas. Do you think that's indicative for where you are in Eastern Europe? Do you think that's indicative of like World War II, right? Being aware of what your surrounding countries are doing so you don't end up in the same shit show you did 80 years ago? I mean, is that part of kind of, and that's a guess on my part, with what Europe's gone through, they are just more cognizant of what's going on around them as opposed to insular to them because of that. I can't speak to Europe as a whole, but being here, I mean, obviously with the EU being here and the WHO and, and the IAEA and all that stuff being here, I think there's a different buzz around politics and world politics. And, and I, I think like Duke was saying, with the U.S. being so powerful, I mean, obviously, how can you not pay attention? Right. But the, the point I made is the point that to further Duke's point was that it's not just the political figures, right? It's it's your average Every, Austrian right. person yes. out in the middle of the country who has, you know, a dairy farm, knows more about American politics than, than the average American. And they generally know more about American politics than they do their own nation's politics. Can we send them a voter registration card and I can have them vote? Because <laughs> at least then, you know, fuck. No, uh, no, no, no. We only want people to vote who have skin in the game. That's right. True. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but again, but this, as powerful it, as we are, the world has skin in the game with America, right? Because they can leverage a lot of things around the world. Yes, they, 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 they do have sort of a, what's the, the the reverse aspect of it that they can be helped or harmed. Um, by the decisions America makes. And the, and the beautiful thing for us, thank goodness is that we are large, blessed by geography and powerful, and uh, other parts of our culture are enormously useful in human societies to make us a more vibrant and innovative culture. Those things are strengths that have helped us. We have, blissfully, we have a lot of room for error, and we make plenty of them, right? Yes, we do. But other countries, tiny ones, surrounded by larger, stronger powers, like Austria, 
like Republic of Georgia, like name a hundred other countries in the world, they have no room for error. None. They have a deep inability to take too much risk or to miscalculate wildly in the way that we have in the past. They just won't survive it. I mean, this is an old joke that Otto von Bismarck is famous for one of the things he's famous for saying is that, you know, God looks out for fools, drunkards, and the United States of America. And <laughs> that's because we have this incredibly blessed geography in so many ways we could talk. We have a whole separate podcast on that, that is, has accelerated and magnified and mag, uh, multiplied our economic power. Uh, it's helped that we started as a trading nation and then we are that globally, that only increases uh, benefits to you and your partners. Uh, so there's lots of reasons why it is the way it is. It's just, uh, it would be nice if Americans were able to see how things are elsewhere and then make some comparisons. That would, I think, inform them. And that's hard because we don't really have any systematic way for that to happen unless they pursue study on their own, right? And that. You know, that could be even self-study uh, now that the internet is available, but often that gets sidetracked into uh, dilutions of idiocies where all the village idiots find each other, you know, to, <laughs> there's a site where hundreds of thousands of people think Queen Elizabeth eats babies, and you can go visit that site today if you want to, and you can go to QAnon, and you can get diverted with all manner of nonsensical drivel. Uh, so, you know, we're not, and, you know, people are busy. Uh, my kid's in school, one of them's not doing so well. I'm trying to work on that with a tutor. We got sports, we got music lessons, swim lessons. We got uh, this thing I'm supposed to help out with at church. Uh, you know, that's a hectic week for me. I'm not going and doing a deep dive on the Middle East this week, right? Because I'm busy. I totally get that. And, you know, we have enough people in this country and it, and it, and a foreign and security establishment that's large enough and established enough to really try to address these things sensibly. The problem is we have an elected elite that has discovered they can pretty much say whatever they want to about what's going on abroad. And most Americans won't realize that it's utter nonsense or not. They won't have any way of really validating it or verifying it. And once you create a distrust of elites as they're called, that means somebody with expertise about something, doesn't matter what, bowling expert, cocktails expert you know once you decide to start dismissing elites because they're elites well then you're free to think whatever you want regardless of facts and information and you know and that's i think a, a cause of some of our political dysfunction and then politicians have learned that they can they can say and do those things quite readily without being checked uh, and so they can benefit from it therefore they're going to continue to do it till it harms them right yeah, well, you yeah. said you made a statement, Duke, where you had said, you know, talking about people not educating themselves because what they ultimately will do is they'll use elected officials to guide them. So if you're well, that's not the system in a, in a Republican right. democracy, right. you know, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. But the problem is now you have to trust that the people in power are making the right decisions. Yeah. And, and that I think is one of the issues that we have is some people just blindly kind of sheepishly you know not sheepishly but as sheep will just follow it's like oh well, they're saying xyz so i regurgitate xyz i don't educate myself i don't go to multiple outlets to to get informed you know i only go to one place and and that's where i go and it's like yeah but that's not a good way to be no but i don't know that it's anything new no absolutely society, not right um so this this is what led me to believe that the Atlantic piece that they, that Grid sent out was a bit silly, 
um, because it's not new and, and this kind of thing isn't linear um, in, in the way that the article was describing, which we don't need to get into if you want to. I think on the other point you raised, uh, uh, Thor, uh, before, as you were talking about mixed uh, critiques, most of which I found to be pretty accurate uh, descriptions of facts about our society. Now, what we want to do about them, if anything, is open to debate. Um, why don't more countries talk like this to us uh, or about us in this way? And that's, uh, as a general rule of politics, I think worldwide, if you talk publicly about a problem or an issue, then you're expected to do something about it. And this isn't something they can do anything about, typically, except perhaps behind closed doors, right? In offering advice and information to the current leadership in either the legislative or executive branch to say, hey, this is how this is being perceived. This whole Ukraine thing looks great to the Europeans and the Japanese and the Americans, but to the Africans and the Indians and the Indonesians, it's not so popular for these reasons. And you should be aware of that so that you can address it, right? But they're not gonna say it publicly and you know, crap on a relationship that's, as we've talked about with Haas, especially, you know, highlighting, it's, these are, the relationship with the U.S. is enormously important to most countries. They can't afford to piss us off because it's just too much downside, not enough upside, right? So, so they're not going to do it publicly. Privately, they'll exchange whatever frank views they got and make sure the transcript doesn't get released. You know, that's fine, which is okay. Not all diplomacy should be open, uh, in my opinion. You know, some of it can be private, that's perfectly okay. Kennedy made a deal to swap out missiles in Turkey that we were going to you know, get rid of anyway. So the, so the Russians would withdraw the missiles from Cuba. He didn't talk about that publicly, but it was a perfectly sensible thing to do. If he had talked about it publicly, you might not have been able to do it. So, okay, right. it was secret. Great. Perfect. So, so well then, done. go ahead, Max. Sorry. No, I was going to, I was going to ask. So why do you think it is then that America can't take the criticism, right? I mean, because if, if I'm looking at it from what you said, you know, everybody's afraid to say something because, you know, they'll, they'll piss off uh, America, which I, I get, right? You know, but, but why are we so sensitive as a nation then that we can't look, you know, take that constructive criticism? I, I, I take a look at your politics right now. We have a whole faction of the electorate that was outraged about so-called critical race theory, which is really just <laughs> teaching an accurate history of the story of this country. It's not, right. it's not alarmingly bizarre to talk about how slavery was an enormously important economic institution to the settlement of a large part of this country. It was the economy of over half the country for a long time. Lots of laws and procedures and policies were put into place then and in the era after then when white power reasserted itself after reconstruction that continue to cause discriminatory effects. This is, that's at the heart of critical race theory, not that that's actually being right. taught, you know, in, in our public schools, but this was a work countrywide movement outraged about this. Why? Um, because uh, the truth hurts, I guess. Uh, and, you know, foreign countries don't want to find out whether we can take the criticism or not. Right. Why, why would I risk. take the chance? You yeah. know, I'll tell you privately, but, you know, publicly, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to throw drinks on your suit. You know, we're going <laughs> to 
partner <laughs> and be, you know, collaborative on these things that we can collaborate on, which, you know, is a very sensible, practical approach to policy, right? Because in the is end, it, they don't need us today, they might need us tomorrow. Right. Is it that they, as America, as Americans, do we look inward and think our house is in order? How dare you tell us? You know, because as a foreign country, I think you would openly want to say, your house is a shit show. How, you know, how can you tell us how to, you know, run a democracy or have, an, you know, when your own house and it's like, no, we're, we're, we're in good shape. We look around and we go, everything's good here. Well, Russia and China do say that, right? Other countries <laughs> do say that, right? Yeah, but consider the narrator, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we don't pay much attention to them, but uh, it doesn't mean they're wrong about everything they say. Right. You know, uh, uh, so I think in the end, before a politician or a policymaker does anything, they're examining what will be gained and what might be lost if we do X or say X. And if there's nothing to be gained, then why do it? Why say it? Right? There's no point. And in many cases, you know, for the chancellor of Austria or the president of France to come out and talk about, Jesus mighty, what's going on in the U.S. with all this bigotry and craziness, you know, showing, rearing its head. You know, we thought we had, you know, finally moved a little bit past this. Uh, what's he going to get out of that? Nothing. It doesn't really help him with his... Now, if it if it would help him with a domestic audience, maybe he might do it. But yeah. for most domestic audiences, it won't help them. So who cares? Why bother? Do something that's going to affect your essential group of supporters and reinforce their support. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, kind of coming back to the to the critique from the member of parliament or whatever his name was, you know, Nick. it's a bit of okay, an axe to grind. But what's your point? Like, do you just want to be able to voice critiques more freely? <laughs> like, you know, does that get us anywhere if you can? I don't know. Well, this is a good point, Dave. What was his ask? <laughs> right. He was speaking to the Irish Parliament. What was his ask? I don't know. I listened to him. I don't know what his ask was. Right. Just yeah. frustrating. Well, and I think that's. I, I think that goes back to a point you made, dude. Right. If you you can bring up all this shit all you want to, but what's your solution to fixing it? I mean, or or are you just you know spouting out you know the obvious yeah. just airing yeah. dirty laundry to air dirty laundry <laughs> yeah i mean if you if you bring nothing to the table and say okay here's all the problems what are we going to do about it from our country standpoint or yeah. here's what we can do what, what's really being gained by any of that well i didn't hear any of that from him right no. in his address at least in the taped version right that we saw you know uh what could he ask i don't know he could he could he could ask for any number of foreign policy initiatives or something, you know, things at the UN to be uh, you know, addressing some of the craziness. The, I don't know how successful would they be? I doubt that they'd be very successful. So sometimes I don't know what his constituency is, right? Where it is in Ireland and who comprises his base of political power within that constituency. Sometimes critiquing something or someone or some country or some place or some activity gets you uh, donations and gets you uh, votes. Maybe that was the purpose of the exercise because that was going to be something that was popular in his district. In which case he was solving a problem, not the problems he was talking about. He was solving a different problem, his, his need for mm -hmm. additional donations and votes for the next election cycle. And that's one way to really think about politicians when they're doing or saying something in public. Uh, realize that they're solving a problem 
it may not be the problem they're talking about or the one you want them to talk about. It's a problem that they're solving for themselves sometimes, right? Um, maybe uh, tying in one point that he brought up with a question I was going to ask, because I, you know, you use the term, these things aren't linear, which, which I understood what you meant in that none of this is ever a flat or a unchanging trajectory right. of we're just increasingly heading towards the doom of a country, you know, as the Atlantic article suggested. Um, but, you know, I, I did think about one thing he said, which is, you know, the dollar value to be able to even enter the race, the presidential race, and the fact that, you know, he said Bernie Sanders wasn't even allowed to win, which, you know, it's just true. I mean, in the sense that. Yeah, but Bernie the, Sanders wasn't even a member of the Democratic Party. Right, right. I mean, I mean what do you want? It's, it's true. I don't know why he was even running. I mean, <laughs> why he was allowed to run. It was right. right. I'm it's not true. It, it's just the, you know, the fact is the Democratic Party made a decision on who they wanted to win. But the larger question would be back to the idea of trajectory. Um, in terms of where we are with our politics, do, do you think there's a change event possible to maybe get us back into a better place where we're, it's not all identity politics? Everybody on Facebook now knows who you voted for, where you stand, and it's literally divided families you know, and friendships because it's so prominent nowadays. And we can't even agree on basic facts with which to debate, you know, back to the information of, oh, who'd you hear that from? I don't trust that source. They're just inherently wrong, right? Yeah. So my first thing is, so we'll talk about this paper that we were referring to where he saw us at a tipping point, Mr. Kloss, Brian Kloss. And, you know, once democracies tip like this, then they go into extinction, basically was his, the thrust of his commentary article. And, you know, he is a commentator. And they have to write a column every week, and therefore they write a lot of nonsense over the course of their lives. And Brian Kloss was born in 1986. And teenagers have a tendency to think the world has always been the way that they found it as they began to discover it as teens, you know, what it's really like. Uh, and, and so he was a teenager in the 90s. So this is the world he thought, you know, that it was always like this. But I would say that the kind of politics that you're talking about, Dave, is only different in one way, and it's in a very favorable way, which I'll get to at the end, because I want to tease you. <laughs> uh, when I was, I was born in 1960, I'm 62 years old. In 1968, American cities were burning because of race riots, because of the way non-white people were treated in this country under the law. The American military was shooting down children of the middle class who were protesting our participation in a tremendously wasteful and uh, brutal war abroad. Now, we didn't see that during the last two wars. We saw some protests and some, but we didn't see the American military shooting children in the middle class. We haven't seen that since 1968, right? We had a politics that was virulently uh, divided with numerous assassinations of political leaders in the 60s when I was a child. Let's go to the 70s now and say, a woman in America couldn't even get a friggin' credit card in her own name until 1974, when I was 14 years old. Uh, you know, Roe versus Wade was 72. You know, now it's been withdrawn as a president for now. Um, and of course, the heart of women's equality is 
their decision making on when to have children or not, right? At the, that's the heart of it. Everything, everything about that decision, if taken away, that power is is about subjecting them to a hierarchy of power that you know results in them not controlling their own bodies, even which is insane. Um, but the idea that this was all fixed and solid and well resolved, you know, in the '90s is not true. There was still a huge faction, as we've seen, as has emerged more publicly in terms of the coverage because a number of things have changed since the 90s. One is we no longer have the fairness doctrine in our national media. That was revoked in the Bush, George W. Bush administration. So now we no longer have to present various sides of an issue, and there's more than two sides often, uh, when we're covering it as a so-called news organization. Now we can narrow cast to our viewers and feed them whatever pablum and feel good shit that they wanna, <clears throat> if they always wanna hate poor people, we'll just give them that material 24 seven, because we don't have to be fair. Um, and then we had Citizens United, which allowed corporations to donate freely in unlimited amounts to uh, uh, indirect campaign uh, donations, Packs which and so forth. Yeah. Prior to Citizens United, only about $31 million a year got donated by corporations to political campaigns because there was no, no way to apply that power, their mm -hmm. combat power, their financial power uh, efficiently. But now there is, and they do. Right. And of course, we've seen both parties uh, have a lack of antitrust enforcement so that every every industry in America has become market concentrated, where the big three or four control 80 percent of the market or more, which is one of the reasons we have inflation. Some inflation is due to supply chain differences right now. Some is just due to shareholders taking their rents because they can. They can keep the prices up when the when the when the fuel crisis and uh, the oil crisis and gas uh, happened starting in february with russia the major oil uh, hydrocarbon companies did not huge inv invest in huge uh, expansions of their exploration and development programs they took rents they took the profits and they have done cash payments dividends are at record levels uh, cash uh, share buybacks are at record levels and they're not expanding production well guess what why not because they don't fucking have to, because they're not in a competitive <laughs> market. So, excuse my language, sorry. No, no, no. It's... no that's... <laughs> so so you, you have this uh, situation, and I, I guess I'll leave it there. I got to come back to the teaser though, right, Dave? So, Dave? <laughs> I got the whole seat, but I only need the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so he, he, he thinks the world was always like what it was when he became a teen and discovered it like it was in the nineties when it seemed that we were moving past many of these historic issues of not treating people equally before the law, which is the 14th amendment, of course, you know, in our constitution, but it's not one that's been honored historically in our country ever. Right. It's, it's the story of America is still that there is an in-group that must be protected by the law, but not bound by it. And there are out-groups who must be bound by the law, but who will not be protected by it. And the fight in American politics today is still about that. And there's various groups of people for various reasons. The ultra wealthy think it's them and they donate heavily and influence politics in a certain way to preserve their prerogatives, even when their interest is not, self-interest is not enlightened, even when it will inevitably lead to them not having things turn out the way they would like. You know, We know the economic statistics before the French Revolution, other revolutions, we know how this movie can end, but that doesn't seem to inform everybody, you know, in terms of the actions that they take. So 
and remind me of the teaser, Dave, because now I'm not wrapping it up for you <laughs> in a way I wanted to. So, uh, um, you've gone off in a direction now. Yeah, I would say I started off with, uh, you know, his point was $2 billion to get into the race. And you said um, the trajectory is not linear. Yeah. So we, so A, we got better for a while and now we're starting to get worse again. So that's already a demonstration that his linear projection is wrong. And we've had all, all manner of uh, stories of societies that have thrived, impaled themselves, and then thrived again. I mean, there's, there's three epics of Egyptian empires, right? Because it's not linear. It's cyclical in many cases. And sometimes, you know, uh, you know, Western Roman Empire fell in, you know, 450, whatever, 460. But the Eastern one was good till 1453. Right. Uh, so, you know, was that a shifting? Did it move from Rome to Byzantium? You know, you could make that argument. We can argue all kinds of things about history, which we don't need <laughs> to do today. But um, the idea that it's that somehow we hit a tipping point, and then it's linear till our ultimate you know, collapse as a democracy is, is not so. It's always been a struggle. It was a struggle from the very beginning when our constitution actually said non-white people who are enslaved are three-fifths of a soul and count toward representation, but don't get to vote or have any other rights. That was in, written in at the beginning, which is why I think original textualists are foolish when they say that's that what they believe. That's not what they actually Thank you. believe, by the way. You know, <laughs> they don't actually believe it because that's not what they rule on. The decision about Roe was made by six people who claim their original text. You know, you know, let's think about what the founders wanted. The founders okay. refer this. We're way off the topic now. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's all right. The, the founders refer to two kinds of citizens. The founders refer to two kinds of citizens, natural born and foreign born in the constitution. The idea of an unborn citizen didn't even enter the mind of one of our founders. The idea that something would have rights and responsibilities prior to birth is not something one of our founders would ever have believed. So are you original textualist? If you believe life, human life begins at the moment of conception and must be therefore protected. You know, we haven't rationalized all the laws to reflect that, by the way. But give it time. Right. Well, <laughs> give it time. Maybe. Who's, who knows? You know, uh, so, uh, you know, they're not original textualists, even though that's what they claim as a way to cover the radicalism of what they're trying to do, right? Uh, we conceal it by pretending we're loyal to the constitution of the founders, you know, even when we're not being so, right? That's because that travels better in American politics than really just saying outright what you're trying to do. Yeah. Haas is shaking his head as our one legal mind here. You're, you're well, then you should talk because I'm not a legal scholar. Yeah. You know, uh, I guess for me, ultimately, you know, when we looked at this episode, and of course, you know, going back and forth with Grinch and having you on, I guess the question is, we try to elevate ourselves to, you know, we are great, or as, you know, numbnuts did when he got elected to the presidency, you know, way back when, make America great again. I, I don't even have the stomach to say his name, but are we great? Has that happened? Are we even on a trajectory that's going to make us great? You know, and and I do believe there is a large portion of the population that believes we are but i know i don't and i look around and yes when i watch you know this mick wallace and the things that he's talking about and as you just mentioned you know uh you know taking away a woman's rights and the fact that we're one trillion plus and you know with student debt and you know we we own more guns you know 
per cap, what, whatever the saying is, but, you know, you know, here in, than any other country in, in the world. And it's like all of these things in terms of kind of where we're at and, and how can somebody look at that and go, yeah, we're great. You know, and we did an episode on really the difference between pride of country and love of country. I love my country. Doesn't mean I'm proud of where my country's at. One does not require the other. Right. You know, it's, it's like I can love well, a family member, but I ain't got to like them all the time. There's nothing they're not mutually inclusive. Right. Not- and I think the important thing, though, is, is, is you've got to determine how do you define great? Right. Well, right? Because yes. I, I, I got set up in a previous episode of saying, well, if you don't like it, then leave, right? Go to North Korea. Um, <laughs> that's a little call back there. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and we saw how that yeah, worked I out. Mean, it, well, yeah. But I mean, how do you define great, right? I mean, well, and there, that's there's a, definitely, that's a great definitely point. Because it's really scales. contextual. Yeah. Right? Because there are a lot of people in this part of the world, especially in Eastern Europe, that still think America's great. And, and I will get approached by people who know that I'm from the U.S., from the Eastern Balkan area and they are very very fascinated about the united states and 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 there's a a fantastical dream they have about coming going to the u.s and creating an amazing life for themselves yeah it's all relative to where you're at i guess right well so you raise a very good point both of you so one thing when you hear statements that are attempting to be normative statements america is great uh something is good or bad uh we should do something and not do something else. The, the, the phrase compared to what is enormously clarifying, right? Compared to what? Is America great? Well, you know, to talk about Big Mac's uh, statement just now, the investment that America made in the Cold War resulted very directly in, in freedom for about another billion or so people in the world that didn't have it during the Cold War. Right. Well, maybe not quite a billion, but uh, if you look around the world of the different uh, countries that were influenced in this struggle, which was not always clean and pleasant and moral, um, it was uh, one in which because of the trade regime that we sponsored and and fostered and bought people's uh, and coerced people's collaboration with two billion people in the last 75 years have been lifted out of poverty around the world. I mean, these are things that are truly great about America, but the, the, the most, the place where I go to, to talk about whether America is great or not is I would talk to our, our ideal national values as expressed in these documents, our founding documents, the idea that a government is only legitimate with the consent of the governed. That was very unique and is still a unique example for the world that is great because I believe it to be what it should be true. You know, I'm using a normative statement there. I think regimes that govern without the consent of the governed are not legitimate and are, they're traditional in most of the history of the the world is like that, but uh, that doesn't mean they're good. So I do think there's all manner of things. If you look at citizens should all be equal before the law. Uh, We should have the ability to speak our minds freely without state repercussions against us, you know, that doesn't protect you from social approbation. If you're an asshole in the middle of the street and people think you're an asshole, well, that's on you. That has nothing to do with the First <laughs> Amendment. That's just you, you know, people responding to who you are. Um, so you're not protected from that. But I think all manner of these things are really great. And they're not shared in the founding documents of other countries around the world in most cases. In some cases, yes. They have informed 
the Declaration of Human Rights that the UN aspires to comply with, but doesn't usually. And the same for us. We aspire to reach our ideal national values. At least most of us do. A lot of us do. Uh, not everybody does. Um, but that's been a historical journey since these documents were written. And you know, now it's our generation's turn to continue that journey. <clears throat> and to fight for the to go the right direction, you know, but it, it's not foreordained, as, as Mr. Kloss thinks, right? Yeah, I, and, and, and to that point, I mean, I guess kind of drilling down into modern politics, I think that's where I, I believe we have a similar mind and on at least many of these aspects. That's where, uh, you know, I say the Republican Party left me because that's no longer what I believe they're espousing or where they're trying to take the country. When you well, look at the it's fringes that have taken yeah. over that party, because that's not the, vi like everything that you describe is what I do love about our country, but that's not where I see the Republican party today trying to take the country. It's actually going in the opposite direction is what it seems. Well, 19 states uh, led by the Republican legislatures, in many cases, governors as well, have enacted laws that re will restrict voting. And we can argue about the mechanisms of voting and what should or shouldn't occur. <coughs> and <coughs> excuse me, as a person, I have no problem with the idea of having to show an ID when I vote. I had to here. I mean, they verified that I was who I said I was. I was on the registered rolls. But so I don't care about that. But there are other there are other, other actions they're taking to both take uh, repressive measures to, uh, to uh, squeeze the vote, make it harder for some Americans to vote, which I think is not correct. And then they're also trying to give state legislatures control over the outcome of the vote, regardless of what the vote count is <clears throat> in some of these Republican states. They've made it very clear that they plan on holding power, even as a minority, um, and they're going to do whatever it takes to do that. <clears throat> they're busy talking about how they want to put people in place so they can actually execute what they failed to do with the the the, the disruption and, and coup, you know, insurrection attempt during January 6th of this year, they make no bones about it when they talk to their supporters that this is what they're trying to put in place as a system so that this will work next time, you know, whether it's 2024, I don't think they're ready yet in 22, and it's all legislative rather than uh, executive. <clears throat> so, and I think they've they've clearly come to espouse all manner of things. I mean, they haven't published a platform in two election cycles. Right. <laughs> which tells you they don't stand for what they used to stand for. And when you look at the actions that they took when in power, they didn't really take any actions that matched their previous earlier era rhetoric, with the exception of, of you know, the only economic policy they've ever had since 1980, which is tax cuts for the wealthy um, and corporations, uh, which, you know, has been tried seven times in the U.S. <clears throat> at national and state level and has never resulted in an increase in investment or, or necessarily an increase in economic activity that was productive and useful for the general population. So, But they're not doing it for that reason. They'll claim that, but they're not doing oh, no, it for that Oh, no, they're reason. not doing it for that reason at all. Right. No, they're doing it to help benefit their wealthy donors. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, no, there's no question. Well, and I think about like the plat, you know, we'll call it a platform. I guess it was a memo or something to the effect that, you know, the Texas Republican Party listed where they 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 included as part of it they did not believe in the last election results yep and to me that's extremely dangerous you know the one maybe aspect of of the article the atlantic article that we talked about was 
there have to be repercussions when you push a democracy to the brink like that to, to set the stage for it not to happen again. And that's a little bit of, I'm, I'm really hoping this January 6th committee, they've done tremendous work. I'm hoping they're laying out the path for the Department of Justice. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think they, the, the wheels of justice, of course, don't grind rapidly, as you, as you well know, you know, and in a system where individuals have rights, um, I don't know that that's a entirely bad thing, but, you know, I understand that the, the process of prosecution for suspected or known crimes that we clearly know about, I mean, Trump was clearly suborning election fraud when his call with Brad Raffensperger, the state mm-hmm. secretary of state of Georgia, there was no other way to interpret that call. And we have right. his voice recorded doing it. There's really, there's no second way to take that. Right. right? right. You know, it's clearly <laughs> Find a crime. 11,800 votes. You know, yes. It's not really confusing. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, when you're wealthier, it's harder to be prosecuted, as you know, because you can afford lots of chaff and, uh, you know, stuff thrown in the air to uh, smogify things, which, you know, has has worked for a while. But you're right. When a political party makes a statement delegitimizing an election on the basis of zero evidence, that is a disturbing thing. Now, I'm not sure that that party has thought through the full implications of what they're doing. Because if elections don't have meaning, why would I, as a Republican supporter, turn out, number one? And if elections don't have meaning, why would I wait for an election to decide to take uh, things into my own hands and change policy through other means? You know? mm-hmm. And in a country with more guns than people, there are plenty of other means available. With, with that being said, Duke, the one, the one sentence in this article that really kind of stuck in my crawl was, American democracy is dying. Like, I mean, we, we, you've touched on it multiple times. This, this guy is very slanted in his tone of his article. And it's quite obvious to anybody who reads it for more than 30 seconds. But that one sentence for me, intellectually and emotionally, sticks with me because I don't want to believe it's true. I don't think it is true. But there's a part of me, there's, there's voices in the back of my head that say, well, is he wrong? So this is a good question, Haas. Uh, is he wrong? Um, could our democracy die? Yes, in any generation. It could die. It could die any time. A republic, if you can keep it, is what Ben Franklin said, allegedly, to that woman who asked him outside the Continental Congress, you know, this is the Constitutional Conference, what, 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 what had happened. What do we get? A republic, if you can keep it. And so you have to do work to keep it. And uh, there are threats. By the way, that Texas state document, the only thing they left off of it was the article of succession. They sounded just like the 1861 document from that state, (laughs) right? Uh, So could it be the end? I mean, maybe, uh, but not if we, people of goodwill, take steps to address the clear iniquities that are trying to be reimposed on the society in ways that are deeply unhelpful to us and don't address any of our real true major problems that the society faces, right? I mean, this is always a matter for politics. What problem should get our attention today? Everyone has their own pet hog problem they want to address first. But, you know, so I'm happy to have a political debate about that. But 
there's all sorts of things they're working on that have nothing to do with any of our problems. They're, they're really trying to reimpose. When Trump said, make America great again, I know you don't like to hear his name there, Thor, but um, <laughs> he was talking about make America in the 1950s again, when white supremacy was unquestioned, when male dominance was unquestioned, right? Um, when everybody shut the fuck up and did what white guys told them to do, right? right? Yeah. I'm sure, I have no doubt that he wants that, right? Look at him, right? Look who he is. So um, and that spoke to a segment of the American public that wanted that, too. Now, I understand why men would want that and white men. I'm not really sure I totally understand some of the reasons why non-white uh, people of color and, and women. women vote for Trump. Uh, I can't quite fathom that. There's there's a reason. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> no, no, there's a reason. I, I've learned that people don't do things for no reason. My years yeah. of combat taught me this. There's no such thing as random violence. There's there's things happen. Some motivation. Yeah. And if you don't know what it is, you better go find out or you might get hurt, you know, if you don't find it out. So that's one of the things we should be working on now is why is it that some of these people, some it's clear why they support this matter of politics and this sort of nonsense. Why do the rest of these people do it, right? I don't really understand that. But the interesting side of that statement and the flip side of that coin is you go, oh, well, you know, when when he was pushing that agenda and you go, OK, non-whites, females, why do they support him? I'm a male. I'm white. And I sure as shit don't support him. Right. Why don't I? Why am I not like, oh, my God, hell, yes. Because you're what educated and you're right? a good human being with a good heart and you respect know for my fellow man. Well, I don't I think we could probably leave morality out of it and just say. The long-term best interests for even, you know, look at us. We're four, five white guys on this call. I was about to say four. Who's not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm Italian-American and back, by the way, in the 30s and 40s, they weren't considered necessarily white. Okay. Uh, so let's be honest. This yeah, is, uh, yeah. you know, that's part of American history too. Yeah, we could get an Irishman on here to tell us about American history, right? <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah. Right. So, uh, so you know. What, what were we talking about? <laughs> well, I, okay. I, I think what you were saying is, you know, as much as we'd like to believe morality is a guidepost for voting, it's not. It's perceived benefit as it relates right. to but maybe your, your want yeah, yeah, of a yeah. way of life. And your long term best interests, Thor, because you are a capable person, uh, aside from the fact that you're male and white, you recognize that the society is going to be ever more vibrant and successful innovative, uh, able to respond to the challenges of the modern age, which are going to be enormous with what I call the synthetic revolution, synthetic biology and synthetic intelligence that are going to challenge us even more than we've been challenged so far by the industrial age revolutions, which we can talk about in a second. Um, This is uh, what we've seen is, you know, who were the superpowers in 1500? Portugal, Spain, and China. In the year 2000, who were the superpowers? United States, Europe, <clears throat> possibly some of the East Asian states, right? If we want to call them superpowers, regional powers. So there was really two, Europe, which is still fractious and divided in many ways, and the United States. Why? Well, there's a correlation between those societies and governance mechanisms that are more participative, they're more resilient and innovative than oligarchies and authoritarian structures that are by their nature, going to try to stifle innovation. They can't help it. Look at the Xi cracking down on the 
the commercial consumer um, uh, uh, high-tech uh, industry because he has to, because it's disrupting the way the oligarchs have divided the wealth in a way that will destabilize his power structure. So therefore he has to stifle it or co-opt it in some way and he couldn't co-opt it, so he stifled it. So there's all sorts of things like this that make a kind of society that is pluralistic, that the maximum number of people have the maximum ability to exercise the maximum number of, of rights and, and responsibilities is going to be better for you too, Thor. Not just, you know, being the big dog in the middle of a shit pile, like it's like being a warlord in Somalia. Who cares? <laughs> right. That's not a great thing. I'm not, that's not You're really very appealing to me. Right. It's still so if I were Somalia, I guess I'd want it. But as an American, it's like, wow, that doesn't look good at all. So, uh, so I think you get that, Thor, but not everybody gets that, right? And, and maybe some people have been made less well off by the expansion of rights and opportunities to non-male, non-white members of our society. So the question is, what are we going to do about that? And I think both parties have been very terrible at addressing that, that particular issue, which is one of the reasons we're having the blowback that we're having now. It's interesting because in that in that you you said you used a word and Mick Wallace and his diatribe to the Irish Parliament also used the word in reference to American politics. He referred to us as an oligarchy, right? Not a democracy because the wealth in this country and the control of that wealth is what controls. I, I assume what he was saying is and his opinion is that wealth is what controls American politics. It's what controls everything within the states. Even though we call ourselves a republic and a democracy. It is the wealth that drives everything and the wealthy, the top 1% that drive everything. Yeah, there have been numerous studies. I'm not sure that Mick has seen them or was referencing them, but there are studies that show that if you query voters, in a certain, whether it's a region or a state or the U.S. overall, what are your main issues that you want attention to? And you query the wealthy. You know, and a, a classic example of this is the, the term Lesterland, right? There's a guy at Harvard who did a great, Great TED talk. You can watch it. It takes about 12 minutes uh, on Lesterland. All the Lesters, there's 144,000 major political donors as of the 2012 cycle in America. And that's the number of Lesters there are in America, right? 140, about 144,000. So he calls it Lesterland. So Lesterland gets the first vote. First, you have to win the Lester election, and then you run in the general. So we do get a choice. But we only get a pre-selection set of choices that Lester's have already chosen, right? And so that's part of their control. And, and the other part is when they look at these issues, what the wealthy have as their priority issues, those are the ones that get politicians' attention and laws and, and, and acts passed by Congress and signed by the president, rather than this list from the general population. That's just documented. I mean, we, can, we don't have to argue about it. It's clearly true. So the wealthy get what they want. And the rest, maybe, maybe not, right? We got to fight for it. Uh, so that's a, an aspect that we could take steps to address to make our republic a bit more fair and give voice to more people, and more weight to other than wealthy top 1.1% people, right? So this thing on Lesterland was fascinating because he did this study um, <clears throat> and uh you really, uh, really boil it down how they do. And if you know anything about the life, as, as, they, as, uh, as Grinch knows, the life of a senator or congressman, they're on the phone four to five hours a day raising money because these election cycles take so much money to do. 
Um, we could do something about that. We could cap spending. We could say no media other than print or radio or whatever. That would be a benefit to some media. We could say you have to stream it. You can stream whatever you want, but you're going to stream it free. And that's the only way you're going to communicate with the public. We could do all kinds of things. Getting rid of super PACs. So it's more of an even playing field financially. You could get rid of dark money. I mean, uh, we've had this crazy law, you know, this determination in the Supreme Court that corporations are people, which I think is a bad precedent. Nonsense. Since they don't hold any responsibility like people can do, right? Uh, But even if you believe that, then Exxon is a citizen, and then uh, and then uh, I'm a citizen. You're a citizen, Haas. You're a citizen, Grinch. But we're not anonymous. Anonymous is not a citizen, so they don't get to fucking donate to political campaigns. You could pass a law like that. They don't want to because that would make fundraising harder, and they already spend so much of their time doing it. They don't want to make it harder to do. Um, you could do steps to remove money influence or reduce it. I don't think you'll ever remove it because there's always going to be ways for third party groups to do stuff and act, act, you know, be activists. And I don't know that we want to stop that, right? You know, they're going to hold a protest. They're going to hold a strike, a sit down thing, whatever. It's not something we're going to control, but if we can make it harder, the other thing though, on the other hand, you know, this is the thing that makes it complicated. Not everybody who has the largest war chest wins the elections. Our our cycles have proven that over and over again. You know, it, it, it is, there's a strong correlation, but it's not, a, a defined for sure thing, right? right? So guaranteed. how much does it influence it? How can we say? We, we, we can't, I mean, clearly it does have some influence, but um, so I think the donations have more influence than the actual impact on the media environment of the, the war chests of the campaign. Although if you've been bombarded with campaign ads at campaign time, then you, you know they, they can be extremely annoying and they're, mm-hmm. they're uh, incessant <laughs> uh, drumbeat, right? Uh, unfortunately, I do most of my my watching of anything streaming, so I don't get to see those, uh, which is good. But uh, yes, it, so <laughs> there are things we can do to improve the playing field so that we can get a better, not a perfect, but a better brand of politics. <clears throat> and I know this is what you. Though. I yeah. know this is what you mean. I'm just going to add the point. Yeah. Um, when you say we can do. We do mean those elected fish officials that have to, that have to pass the law. Well, and we have to elect them. You know, that's right. our job. Yeah. We have to elect them. Yes. Yeah. And I, I worry about, you know, I, I, I believe systems when the fundamentals underlying those systems, that puts the system, that puts the overall operation in jeopardy. So when I think about things like gerrymandering, that to me erodes the system when there's a disproportionate access to funds to shape what comes after that disrupts the system. And that worries me that if those things continue to accumulate without some kind of corrective action. So this know, is, uh, yeah, this is a, uh, a disruptive and unfavorable trend that's occurred as a result of the digital revolution, right? There was a dust revolution. There was a digital revolution. Excuse me. Um, and so you know, in the old days, it was hard. We drew, we gerrymandered back to the revolution. It's where Elbridge Gerry, where the term comes from. John Adams, you know, henchman. Stuff, stuff right? ballots. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, none of this is exactly new, but we became supremely precise given computing power in the digital revolution. So now we can pick house by house who's in my district and who isn't. We can pack and crack 
I have an example. You can go online and find an example where they show you a 60% one color, 40% other color, and you can make that 40% have one extra seat in Congress beyond what the other, the other color has <laughs> if you pack and crack properly, right? Which is what they do. And now they have the competing power to do it, which they did not have in 1968 or 60 or 64 or 72. But today in 2020, 2022, 24, they have that computing power to do it house by house based on all manner of characteristics from your social media and your, your uh, economic demographics and everything else and your, you know, your other demographics. They can choose their voters, which is what they're trying to do when they gerrymander, right? Uh, and to uh, skew the field so that, you know, we're in North Carolina. We're 51 and 49 in this state. And yet we have like uh, 10 Republican and three Democrats or something like that in Congress, right? Uh, or it's uh, nine and four. I can't remember what it is, but it's, uh, it's absurd. You know, it, it does in no way reflects the distribution of population, right? So, and their political views. So um, what do we want to do about that? That's a huge uh, issue that we have to debate. I think if you believe in one citizen, one vote, then you have to do something about gerrymandering and try to do something about it, right? Um, and uh, some states are appointing commissions and that just puts the politics behind closed doors as to who gets appointed to the commission, right? Um, I'm not sure it solves the problem. We'll give it time. Maybe it will be better than legislatures doing it. Uh, I don't know how we do it in a, in a way. Or you could, you could pass a law uh, even at the federal level that says all electoral boundaries have to comply with uh, existing town, county, township, borough boundaries. They can't be severing communities into 50 million pieces, right? Because these, these places have boundaries now because they have a common interest and they live together, right? So you could do that. Now that might result in all sorts of local shenanigans with local boundaries moving, but okay, let's fight it out at the local level, whatever. You know, um, maybe that would be an improvement, right? So now I can't divide Raleigh, North Carolina into 12 different districts, you know, to dissipate the vote of the, the more blue uh, crowd that lives there. I have to uh, deal with the fact that it's a community. It's going to be or a large part of it will be together because it'll have 750,000 people in it. It'll be a district uh, on its own. Um, you know, maybe you, we have the computing power, by the way, to figure out how to do that or to get close to doing that right, with the minimum number of anomalies where the boundaries are violated of certain counties or boroughs. Um, you know, there's other ways you can do it. Uh, so uh, there are, the tools are not impossible to obtain, but no group of people, and right now the ultra wealthy have enormous power. They've always had power, right, in society. Uh, they have enormous power now, and they're not going to share it voluntarily. You're going to have to do things to wrest it from them. And I don't mean that in a violent way. I mean that in a civic action, you know, uh, legal political way. Um, and that's going to take work. You know, it's just not, no one's going to do it for you. I see a lot of people posting on Facebook, term limits now. And I always point out, I said, dude, or lady, you get a chance to term limit these people every two years and you don't do it. Right? <laughs> you know, you could, but 95% of incumbents are reelected. So when you're bitching about term limits, my guess is you're complaining about everybody else, but not yours. That's right. That's right. right. So I hate folks. everybody else, but my representative is yeah, just yeah. fine. He's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
Thor, this is a bit of admin comment here, just based on looking at time, you know, maybe we have some closing thoughts and, and Duke, uh, Duke, I, I, only because I know you got to call your son and some other things coming it's up. Not till four, though. I oh, all right. Well, um, then we just keep on rolling. No, I'm just I will say if we if we want to set the stage for a part two, whenever I know Duke, you uh, the Electoral College is something uh, we've not talked about as a particular yeah. issue. Um, but that's we a tricky about, one. That would be a good conversation. Yeah, yeah we talked about it in Iraq one night. <laughs> well, I almost said something because he said, you know, having the largest war chest doesn't guarantee you a seat. And I almost said having the popular vote doesn't guarantee you a seat. <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, uh, at, at state and local, it seems to. But at the national level for president, it, it does doesn't. not right. because of the Electoral College and the winner take all system by state. Which yeah. you could change. Now, I don't know that you want to, right? Why would a state that has a lot of electoral votes want to give that changes up? so they're distributed according to percentage of vote? That might reduce the amount of tension they get, right? California gets a lot of tension. Well, maybe they don't because they're kind of skewed one way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it would make a difference or not. This, so oh. the electoral college discussion would be really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I think that coupled with the notion of uh primaries and states jockeying to see who's first and the fact that you all they they start eliminating candidates by default because they see that the numbers are insurmountable you know before the race is even complete so not every state gets an equal crack at this is actually who i would like because in many cases the candidate's not even on the ballot anymore by the time the primary gets but should states get an equal crack at it Wyoming has 500,000 people. California is 35 million. Should they have, both have an equal crack at this? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I definitely could see that as, a, as another, another topic because, I mean, you have some states who literally have a law that says if anybody changes their primary date, they'll move it again. <laughs> Just so they can be first. Right. Because <laughs> they know how much money it brings in, right? You know, I, I don't know. To... Does it? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. That's the yeah. question. Yeah, I, I suspect at least they have it, a reason for doing it, but I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. 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 Or it's just an outdated way of thinking that nobody wants to change. Uh, we, we, there's, there's still definitely some meat on the bones there as it relates to all this and just where we're headed. Um, but like I said, I, we, we, we tend to go around roughly this amount of time because yeah. Don does all the editing yeah, sure. um, to get it. I mean, we go over an hour pretty consistently, but still. Um, yeah, hey, look, regularly. whatever you want to do is cool with me. I'm fine. Yeah. I, I mean, look. I'm, I'm not going to bullshit. I have actually learned quite a bit. It, it has made me realize how dumb I feel. <laughs> no, I want to point I, yeah, I wanted to make sure we took a moment to point out that, uh, Gritch, I think you, you really undersold, uh, Duke. Yeah. Um, you said he was smart. He's like super smart. <laughs> That's, you gentlemen are very kind. I, From I'll politics to cocktails. You're drinking, yeah. <laughs> well, he's, you know, he's so I, I will say mine's empty. So you know, Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Dude, you, you seem to be a real history buff. Have you heard of uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast? I have heard of it, yes. There were, there was one time that has kept me from listening to it, but you go ahead. Uh, there, there were sometimes you were talking where you kind of reminded me of him when you were getting going on, yeah. on some on some of your trajectories. Yeah. That's why I asked. So he looks interesting, and I've had someone else recommend him, so I'm going to have to listen to him. But uh, there are some topics in his list that don't, you know, appeal. I'm not a big fan of counterfactual history. 
what if you know a unicorn yeah. showed up and Robert E. Lee could win everything? Right, I, 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 I get <laughs> I that. Care. I understand. I just don't some, care. Some of his more meat and potato stuff is actually quite quite enjoyable. So that's what I have to sift through and get those. Yeah, because you're the second recommendation, and the first guy was also someone that I would trust. So I'll have to go listen to him. You know, um, I am a history buff, and I think honestly, you know, going back to our article, Mr. Class was a political science major. Now he's not a stupid person. You know, he went to MPhil and a PhD at Oxford. You know, the guy's not dumb. So does he really believe what he wrote in his commentary in the Atlantic? Uh, if he does, then I think he's uninformed historically and would have been benefited from taking more history. If he knows that he was just trying to energize an American public to take seriously the threat to democracy that he sees, which I think we all in this group seem to see as well, um, I can understand that as a commentator, that that's a legitimate goal. It also means that you tend to have to exaggerate things as a commentator, right, which can rob your credibility somewhat uh, over time. Um, but he studied political science. But honestly, I think that's a, such a highly subjective, subjective and selective field. I, I think all those people would be better off studying history because mm -hmm. it really helps you understand what is more likely. Uh, the range of possibilities. In the end, just like physics, social phenomenon are path dependent. They're not independent of the path that got you here. So you can't escape that path uh, and just leap to a new reality. We've had how many revolutions of various philosophies demonstrate that to us pretty clearly. You know, even though they were creating a new Soviet man or a new fascist man. Um, you know, so uh, I think the study of history is I found enormously beneficial as a professional soldier, but also just as a citizen to understand that, Oh, I get it. Uh, now I see why this turned out as well or poorly as it did. Right. And maybe we can make new mistakes as Grinch has heard often in his past <laughs> life with me. Let's not make the same old goddamn mistake. Let's make let's all make new, new mistakes. Ones, right? You know, we're going to make mistakes. I get sure. it because we're humans, but let's make new ones. I don't want to so, make the same let's, ones. Let's be progressive <laughs> in our mistakes. Let's not be there. dumb and make the same mistakes. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's kind of the closing thought is, <laughs> I, I, I think is what, what you know, I'll, I'll paraphrase what I believe you were saying is take a breath and relax and think about this in the larger context. This isn't the first time right. something like this has happened. We just need to figure out as a society, what do we want to do about it? Right. Agreed. Yes. Very good okay. synopsis. Yeah. Thanks. If you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. Or if you learn from the past, you're just going to make all new mistakes. <laughs> that's right. And that's just how it's Which is okay. Be. Like I said, let's, you let's heard it here first. That's what I tell my kids. I'm like, you know, at, at 26 and 23, look at your dad and go, don't make the same mistakes I did. Go out and make yeah. all new fucking mistakes. All new mistakes. Exactly. <laughs> right. And then yeah, you'll have double the stuff to teach your kids. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't dad, do what I did. Dad, why'd you keep looking at me when you said make mistakes <laughs> <laughs> you know what at the end of the day duke it has been an honor and a privilege i, I think i speak for the group oh, here pleasure. having you on yeah, absolutely. absolutely um I, I feel like i didn't do much talking i know i i tend to talk quite a bit on the show but it was nice to just have your perspective your insight i, I would love to have you back on you know, if, if you are amenable to it at some point and are willing to share a drink with us once again, you know, if you want to come on and educate us all once more. Glass. Yeah, I'm okay. always happy to raise a glass. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a, jo a joy to chat with you. I'm sorry if I filibustered a bit today. No, no, no. no it was, no, it was quite, enjoyable. Have guests. quite enjoyable. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
And uh, yeah, and we can feel free to go hard at me if you want to, right? They, uh, Grinch knows. Okay. We just have to find the right topic. That's what it is. It's, it it is. is. You know, he's the like first pig, time we're he's like taking the mud, going, "Let's do this." Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The problem is, we got to find something we're smarter at than you. That's, uh, you know, well, the that's range the of topics are your choice. We'll Greatest WWE wrestlers all time. Go Vegas. Right. No, wait, it's Vegas. What was his name? Vegas. McManus? Vegas McCain. McCain. Come on. <laughs> Seriously, you know that guy was uh, very popular with the ladies just on his name. He just introduced himself and he was done. Oh, yes, Endless. of course. Hey, well, we we spread on the podcast that Andy Napoli, uh, you know, his family owned Sicily. So you want Tuscany? Uh, how, what, where do you want us to go with this? Where do you hail from in Italy, your family? <laughs> oh, so my family comes from, if you can picture Italy, the boot, two thirds of the way down on the on the Western coast is Naples, right? Yep. If you go through due east up the mountains to the top of the mountain spine, there's a little village on the top of the mountain called Frosolone. Not Frosinone, that's a big industrial town outside Naples. Frosolone is in the region called the Molise. So, and it's, uh, you know, it used to be a tiny mountain village without enough water. And now it's uh, a resort, you know, of course, in the top of the mountain range. And there's still relatives. One, one brother among eight came to the U.S., my great-grandfather, brought my grandfather, who was seven, with him at the time, and then brought family members over one at a time after that to reunite the entire family. And then uh, after he worked and earned some money, you know, they could bring someone else over. And my grandfather uh, served in the Army, did not go to France during World War I. Then he worked in a torpedo factory in World War II. And then I, uh, you know, my father served in the Navy in World War II on a destroyer in the Atlantic and Pacific. And then I joined the army and served in multiple declared and undeclared wars. And, you know, I think, you know, my father was a successful sports writer. I'm now in business. Uh, you know, the country did okay with our family, you know, the set of knife makers. There's actually a, in, in, in Frozzoloni today, there's a little factory, DeLuca Cutleria, DeLuca Cutlery, because <laughs> they kept making flatware, you know, until the present day. That's cool. I think we just found the uh, the blueprint for how to make America great again. Knives? <laughs> uh, you know, like it says in the play Hamilton, immigrants, we get yeah, the job, job done. done. Yeah. <laughs> facts. Hashtag history there facts. There you go. Well, gentlemen, as always, I appreciate it for all you listeners out there, all you masturbators. You know, it's one of the things we talk about on this show, Duke, is that it is called a spirit of debate. Hey, we have a spirit, we have a drink, and then we debate a topic. I know you said, oh, well, I'll be glad to come back on and you come at me with whatever. But it's hard to do that when I agree with everything you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Makes the debate aspect a little tough. So we just have to find the right topic. But, yes, uh, you know, I, it, it has been a pleasure for all you listeners out there. Please be looking for this episode. It'll be dropping shortly. Uh, love having you on, um, you know. Please check out our website at aspiriteddebate.com. All of the drinks that we have here, any topic you'd like us to try, please feel free to drop us a line. You can do it there, or you can hit us up at our uh, email, the four horsemen at aspiriteddebate.com. Haas, we haven't done this callback. What is that? Is the four horsemen, is that spelled out? What is that? Yeah, it's, it should be spelled out because that's the proper way to do it in the English language, but I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I should have changed it to the quattro yanetes, but it is the four horsemen at a debate.com. Drop us a line there, a drink you'd like us to try, a topic you'd like us to debate. If you drop us a line, you know, we will try to get you on the show. Maybe we can bring Duke back on and he can show you just how unintelligent you are, which is how I feel right now. Uh, 
But as always, gentlemen, thank you so much. Loved every minute of it. And we will do this again next week. So thank you. Likewise. Thank Peace you. out. Thank you. Great fun, guys. Thanks. views, information, or opinions expressed during the A Spirited Debate podcast series or any affiliated podcast are solely those of the hosts or guests involved and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the hosts or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. While guests are invited to listen, listeners acknowledge that they are not being provided professional advice from the podcast or its guests. The content within the parameters of A Spirited Debate podcast series or any affiliated podcast are for entertainment and educational purposes only. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.